Hi, I'm Norm Adams. And I'm Barbara Pritchard. Together, we're the hosts of New Musings on New Music. New Musings on New Music is a podcast that features conversations with composers, educators, and new music practitioners from across Canada. Barbara and I are fascinated by contemporary music, its creation, and the people who are making it. We hope you'll join us and spend a little time with these really interesting people. New Musings on New Music is found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. We release new episodes every couple of weeks. Please subscribe, and thanks for listening. everyone, this is Alex Eddington, and you're listening to Fresh Sounds Open Ears. That's right, we started with an ad. I made a little switcheroo ad deal with another podcast uh, called New Musings on New Music. So this uh, is uh, put out by Suddenly Listen Music. They come out of Halifax. And uh, not only did we swap ads, but I got to be a guest on their podcast, uh, just which came out about a week ago. So I posted links to that on our social media, and uh, I'm also going to be putting a little bonus excerpt from that uh, because there's a part of it where I talked about uh, this podcast and uh, my own work creating music for young and amateur musicians. Uh, So since that part's relevant, I'm going to put a little bonus here. And before we start today's episode, I just want to do the usual bit of housekeeping. Uh, This podcast is now available pretty much everywhere you can find a podcast. So our home base is Anchor.fm, but uh, you can also find us in Podcast Addict, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, etc., etc. There are many little places to listen. Uh, Now, all of these let you subscribe, and if you've enjoyed our show so far and you want to be the first to see episodes when they pop out, please click that subscribe button. Uh, Some of these apps also let you rate and review podcasts, uh, most notably Podcast Addict and iTunes will let you do that. And this really helps us go up in the rankings. So if you enjoyed the podcast so far, uh, why not leave us a review and tell us what you think. Uh, please also feel free to get in touch and uh, reflect on what you've been listening to over on our social media channels. I'm always uh, up for having a little uh, typed conversation with you about uh, what you're thinking. So on Instagram, we are at freshsounds underscore open ears on Twitter at F-S-O-E underscore podcast. And we have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash fresh sounds open years, all one word. So today you're going to hear my interview with Daniel Gardner. Now, the last few uh, episodes, the three we've had so far previous to this one, I've been speaking with composers of vocal music, uh, two of them predominantly writing for choir, and one, Dean Burry, writing a lot of opera. Uh, Daniel Gardner is our first uh, kind of more pure instrumentalist. He's a percussionist, and that really informs a lot of what he does, uh, of course, with both education and with his composition. His other main interest is in the application of electroacoustics uh, as a way of uh, lowering the barrier for entry uh, in music education and also uh, for uh, professional performers uh, designing electronics that they can use as performers without having to learn uh, something very complicated like live coding. So we talk about all those things uh, in this interview. Daniel lives in London, Ontario and did his master's at the University of Western Ontario in London. And I'm going to let him tell you about all the interesting projects that he's been working on, including uh, some involving 
live electronics with trumpet, with voice, um, and ways to level the playing field for students, and a really cool project at the end uh, involving a public sound sculpture and middle school students. So my first instrument was a piano. Uh, When I was six, I started doing um, music with uh, music for young children, uh, with, uh, with one of my neighbors who, uh, who taught it. Um, remember very little of that though. <laughs> so there's not much to, to speak on. Uh, I think I really started taking music more seriously when I was 14 and I started taking drum lessons. Um, okay. So uh, percussion is my main instrument. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I would say probably, Piano was my first instrument, but I didn't really start playing anything until I was 14 and then uh, on the drums. And then I really didn't start seriously practicing until maybe I was 17, like the year before I went to university. <laughs> um, yeah, I get that trajectory. Did you did you continue with piano at all or, or that was just like the first attempt at finding uh, that musical spark? I came in and out of it. Um, okay. So I did music for young children until I... I think it was seven or eight so not very long and then i started taking uh lessons with private lessons with uh with another person uh, until i eventually ended up with uh sort of my long-term piano teacher uh his, uh, his name's francis rose um uh, and uh yeah so i mean i did that until i was probably right up until i started drums i, I was doing piano with him uh, and then I stopped for a couple of years. And when I was about to go into university for it, I took piano back up uh, okay. to, to get my, my skills back into shape. I was taking a lot of private lessons uh, in my last year of high school um, to, to sort of get myself into shape because there wasn't um, mu- the musical enrichment in, uh, in like my high school programs and things was not very robust. Um, yeah, so, that was the next thing I was going to ask. Like, were you playing drums or or percussion in school ensembles? Kind of, to a degree. I mean, my my high school band program, I think, was eight people. Uh, three of them were percussion. Um, I was the only one that played pitch percussion. Oh wow! Uh, so, so you you got stuck on it all the time on yeah on uh, and. The, uh, xylophone, and xylophone playing marimba parts. Yeah, know, yeah, exactly. Pieces, xylophone, yeah. glockenspiel, <laughs> anything that that required you to read staff notation. Um, yeah, I got stuck on. And the, um, I mean, the to, to give you a sense of uh, how uncommitted the the public schools were to music, uh, the the strings on the xylophone were broken, like just that hold the bars up. So, and they refused oh. to buy new ones. So the wait, for over what? a. So when 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 those are broken, they're touching things they shouldn't touch. Right? Yeah, they don't I mean, I, I jerry-rigged together a thing so that it cut out like the middle octave accidentals. Uh, okay. So you couldn't. So I could make adjustments, but it was yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's there's not much. Uh, there wasn't a lot of music going on in in, in my high school. Um, okay. So were you playing drums on the side? taking lessons yeah i was taking drum lessons on the side um with a with a local guy and then i was also heading up to uh napanee which is uh like 45 minutes north of belleville oh yeah uh and i was taking um percussion lessons with uh uh, greg runyons he's the uh the percussion teacher at queens 
and okay. he also taught at the uh, at the public school in Napanee, so I would go there once a week and meet with him, and he would give me lessons. That's awesome. Are we talking like like drum kit or percussion in a wider sense? Like percussion in a wider sense sort of thing. So um, like I couldn't do like timpani or anything, uh, but we went over like timpani technique. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we did mallet percussion and we did, uh, we sort of got my, my snare drum playing uh, out of the realm of like rock musician uh, whack stuff and... <laughs> into the realm of uh percussionist whack stuff in a different way um yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what what kind of music did you want to like whack stuff for like what were you what were your what were you listening to what did you want to play like oh a, i i drummer? mean all through high school it, it was like punk post-hardcore uh yeah. like heavy stuff uh you know heavy loud music um and then like a little bit of jazz and stuff, but uh, mm -hmm. overwhelmingly that. Um, yeah. It, it's neat that uh, you were excited about music that, you know, is, is drum kit music, but then you're taking lessons from someone who is teaching you other things too. Yeah. Thinking of percussion as a, as a whole. <laughs> what is it? It's a whole universe. Yeah. How many instruments would you say you know how to play with proficiency? How many different percussion instruments? Oh, with, with proficiency. Uh, that's, <laughs> I guess that, yeah, that, that's like doing a lot of heavy lifting in that <laughs> sentence. Uh, I mean, if I'm, if I'm uh, praising myself uh, ungenerously, probably none. But uh, <laughs> no, so like um, uh, marimba, glockenspiel, xylophone, timpani. I, it's, I mean, it's got to be somewhere in the order of 15 to 20. I think to the outside observer, I look proficient on congas, but uh, <laughs> I know in my heart, I'm a really terrible conga player. Oh, that's a rich, rich tradition. Yeah. People, you know, yeah. Like, I'm not going to assume that you're a tabla master, right? Yeah. Because there are some instruments you just need to go deeper into yeah. than, than orchestral percussionists can. I just find it very interesting that, like, um, you know, most teenagers who get that percussion spark are probably getting it through their high school band. Yeah. But, it's, but you were interested outside of that, which is neat. I, I don't know if you know, I'm a high school band teacher, among other things. Yeah. So uh, one of the, uh, you know, I, it's it's really neat to see like those those students who are super, super psyched about percussion and they want to learn all the instruments for their school band. Yeah. And then there's some who just wanted to play kit mm -hmm. and they're disappointed. They're like, oh, snare, I get to play snare. And then they walk toward the kit. You learn, no, 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 no. The kit that's standing on its own over there. That Sorry, the snare that's standing on its own over there. That's the one you're going to go play right now. And the bass drum is someone else. <laughs> yeah, and then you got to coordinate to 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 kick out the jams, right? Exactly. Uh, you well, got to you got to convince the rest of the percussion section to hijack the rehearsal. Yeah, it's uh, it's a whole world unto itself, um, and I think it must change how you think about composing. So, like, okay, let's let's segue there. So, you, you get in, you're, you're going to university. You went to uh, Mount Allison University. Which oh, was Mount A. Interesting, because I was just listening to your last episode. Uh, your episode with um i'm blanking on his name dean burry dean burry uh, which for he... for listeners at home was actually two episodes ago <laughs> uh for when you hear this and a month ago uh it's just yeah we've have, we've have a compressed interview schedule and a nicely spread out release schedule yeah so dean burry episode two uh go on daniel please. yeah <laughs> dean burry episode two uh and uh, yeah so I, it was interesting to, to listen to that i imagine he went there well before me so he probably would have studied with uh with jim code uh who was the the composition professor there until 
uh, until 2012, I think. Right. Yeah. Um, when did you start composing? Um, so the first uh, memory I have of actually writing a piece was in grade seven. Um, it was garbage. Uh, it was done for uh, an independent study project. Um, uh, so I did uh, the international baccalaureate program uh, throughout uh, middle school and part of high school. Um, uh, and one of the requirements for what was called the destinations program, which is the grade seven and eight program, is you had to do three independent studies a year. Um, uh, so I, one of them, I decided to, to compose a piece of music. Um, and there was very little, uh, very little support. Um, the philosophy behind it was like, oh, it's independent study, but it's entirely isolated independent study and you need to figure everything out for yourself. Like emphasis on independent. Yeah. Well, not just like pursue your passion sort of in, independent, <laughs> but like, we won't answer any of your questions sort of independent, which, I, which is kind of difficult in, uh, you know, like 2000, what, 2007, uh, you know, there wasn't a, a vast proliferation of uh, musical information on the internet. Uh, so figuring out mm -hmm. exactly what you're doing was, uh, was really challenging. So I ended up writing a piece of music um, and it was, it was simple to the point that I can still remember it. <laughs> okay. For, for what instrumentation? Oh, it was solo piano. Cause that's okay. what I was, was playing at the time. Okay. Yeah, so how do you get from, you know, a piece you don't sound too too enthusiastic about and had no guidance on, like, how did, how did you exit that project wanting to do more? And, like, um, and when did you start feeling like you were getting support? Uh, so I exited that project um, probably a little disheartened. It probably left me a little, uh, <laughs> a little uh, unenthused to, uh, to compose more because, like, fiddling at the piano was always something that I did. Uh, I, I would rather, you know, uh, if I had a piece to work on, then I would, you know, practice it for about five minutes and then I would start not practicing it and playing whatever, yeah. whatever things came to me. Uh, and uh, from that, I, you know, uh, I think the next thing that I, I legitimately composed and, uh, and like wrote down, um, it's probably, just before I entered into uh, university, uh, so when I was like 17. Um, and that's because I was taking uh, theory les lessons in preparation. Um, so I was sort of inundated with a lot of theory information. And I'm like, oh, well, this all makes sense now. I know what that sound is. I've heard that before. Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, it all makes sense now that someone's <laughs> actually explained it to me. <laughs> sort of there thing. There is something magic about, about when you hear theory as... You hear when you can hear it when you hear that theory is has sounds yeah. that go with it, right? And then and then you're like, oh, I can compose with those sounds. Yeah, is that what it was? Like you figured out how to play certain chord progressions at the piano, or and then yeah, you you come to understand like some uh, you know just basics of like chord construction and inversion. It's like, oh, these are the chords that work together. Isn't yeah. that useful? Uh, that. that 
cuts down my uh, my guess and check process infinitely. <laughs> it does, and you get to kind of go back and realize that all the Clementi sonatinas you've been playing use these things <laughs> exclusively. Yeah, I don't know if I was doing a lot of Clementi sonatinas, but... Uh, I, 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 so. that's, for some reason, I was really into those at age 15 or whatever, so... <laughs> they were my they were my jam. I was uh, I was decidedly a very bad pianist. So. <laughs> right. And and you know what? I think there's a disadvantage for me of having been, you know, a reasonably proficient teenage pianist is then you I got really stuck in that when I first started composing. Mm-hmm. And it's all about the chord shapes. But you, you were listening to 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 punk and and you know, what did you ever write punk songs or did you did you ever cons- you know, was that a direction you wanted to explore? Uh, not really. Um, no, like not at the piano. Uh, I, no. I enjoyed doing like, I've always enjoyed doing like basic transcription, like just working stuff out by ear. So I sit, would sit down, work out chords, melodies and that sort of thing and, and sort of set them at the, the piano. Nothing particularly challenging. I still do that. And I like improvising to, uh, to listening to, to music, mm-hmm. um, just as, you know, uh, a, a musical activity to do for my own, uh, for my own sake. <laughs> um, sure. so, you, so you do that with some of the songs you were listening to? Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think composing wise, my big influences were probably like seventies prog stuff. So like, I was also mm. listening to a lot of like Emerson, Lake and Palmer and King Crimson and, uh, you know, the, those sorts of bands, uh, Genesis, Right, uh, and that's I think where a lot of my like oh when I listened to when I understood theoretical concepts uh, I think that's a lot of what my references were because there was a lot more uh, function in in that music than uh, than in the punk music I was listening to which yep. is about cyclic chord progressions so absolutely and and in 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 some of the bands you're talking about also getting interesting rhythm and and meter and mm-hmm. forms that unfold in unexpected ways over time and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what, like, do you consider yourself a, a, a classical composer in quotation marks or like what, um, what, what, how do you describe your music? And I, you know, let's, let's do, let's just do the, like the, the hard question here. Can you pick three words to describe your composing? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> I think I think they come as a set. I think the thing I would go with is uh, is potion press post impressionistic serial trash. Uh, Say that again. <laughs> post impressionistic serial trash. I love uh, it. I did at first think you were going to say potion, because, <laughs> but and like that, I was prepared to really go that direction. But post impressionist serial trash. Okay. Yeah. So let's break this down. So post impressionist. <laughs> So impressionism, we're talking, we're talking Debussy. That there's a lot of evocation of mood and yeah. and light. Uh, and so, what's post-impressionist in your? I, I I'm I'm really drawn to the smushy chords. Okay. Uh, I really like the, you know, you hold down like the full whole tone set. Um, yeah. So usually when I'm I'm working, I'm I'm seeking out those sorts of sounds. Um, yeah, that's that's the extent of it. A lot of my influences are are from uh, French composers that are uh, I feel are sort of of that uh, of that ilk. Um, right. So, like obviously Debussy, Ravel, uh, Lily Boulanger, uh, those sorts of composers. But then later composers like Henri uh, Dutilleux and Olivier uh, Messiaen, mm-hmm. um, wow. also very similarly evocative of those sort of smushy. Uh, 
uh, impressionistic harmonies, but in a more yeah. uh, atonal sense. They are, and also they they're post-impressionist also in the sense that there's there's less of a sense of you know we're writing about mists and waves and and things right it's there's less of an evocation of a specific image perhaps yeah. um although well for messing he's 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 evoking um all of the religious stuff religious and and metaphysical yeah. ideas yeah which which were images for for him very personal way of looking at the world for him yeah. Okay. So that, but but you you're taken kind of by the the sense of harmony and the this yeah. kind of synthetic scales and yeah. It's I mean it's very much about the the sound world for me than rather than yeah. uh, any sort of um, I guess inspiration. Um, sure. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because talking to some of the other composers I have in this podcast, uh, you know, we've been talking about being influenced by extra musical things, by images or by texts. Uh, or by the emotion you're trying to get across. But it sounds to me like you're talking a little bit more absolutely about musical materials being something your ear likes. Yeah, I mean, there's, in terms of my thinking about, like, style and things like that, I, I my my non-musical influences are definitely uh, more divorced from, um, I guess, the, the absolute sort of musical qualities of it like I, I generally start with an idea so a, an example of that is a saxophone piece i wrote called uh enceladus which is about uh the the moon of saturn uh of the same name um right. which has giant geysers that shoot off of it and then oh go out it's to that form. one yes i've yeah. seen some great photos of that yeah and then they go and form part of the the ring of saturn right um uh so the piece that I wrote was evocative of that in the, in the sense uh, it was my starting point. I'm like, okay, so uh, musically, what's this like? Well, it's, it ends up being very like, you know, dark and uh, sort of subdued. Uh, and, uh, you know, it has these trailing ends to it, which is uh, just like a delay effect. Um, so there, there's certainly some, uh, some influence of the insp extra musical inspiration on pre-compositional uh, decisions, but once I'm in the thick of the composition, it's mostly about the the pure sonorities of it. For sure. And it's an interesting thing to me that people get into composition from such different directions and that also compose in such different ways. But mm -hmm. you can be totally emotion-driven, totally image-driven, or just be all about the sound. And and all of it works. And, and of course, you can do all of those things, too. I find I, I bounce around between them. So, okay, so that's, that's post-impressionist. You, you said serialist? Serialist, and that's just, that's just straight up procedural, that, like how I get notes on, a, notes on a page to... Right, so are you using uh, a 12-tone matrix, or is it your own sort of spin on that? Yeah, it, well, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's my own system based on 12-tone method um, that draws from... Uh, uh, the idea of set invariance within a uh, 12-tone uh, system. Okay. Um, so the process is essentially to... I don't know if this is getting too in the weeds. <laughs> the process is to partition a row into uh, chords of N size um, and loop the procedure until you return back at the beginning of the row and you get the same set. So you end up with a, a table of sonorities uh, okay, so you're actually you're not just moving freely within a matrix of of twelve tone. You're you're creating permutations that have a certain they they rotate out and then back over yeah. time. Yeah, so it's about the the, the um, 
it's about developing sort of chords out of it to say that there's okay. a little a little cell, a little cell, a little cell. And then if you proceed through those cells linearly, you end up with a 12-tone row. And then I tend to use the, the cells freely as I wish. Uh, I don't behold myself <laughs> to, uh, to like, well, it must be in the order that it appears because exactly. reasons. Um, or yeah. even if I'm like, I don't like that note. Uh, I want a different note there. Then totally. That's, Your ears are the boss. Yeah, they, so they it, have to be. It's a hundred percent about getting notes on the page, and then, um, <laughs> as as my my first composition prof said, it's uh, composition is a is a process of decision making. Um, yes, you know, and some decisions are equal, and some decisions are slightly better, and some decisions make or break. Um, and then it's just about deciding which one you're dealing with. And sometimes your decisions are to take some of your ideas and ball them up and throw them out the window. Uh, that one I, happens more than I'd like to admit. Yeah. Well, I think it's I think it's part of it. Um, this is cover your ears at home, but it's something I've, I learned in a in a drama uh, workshop I did once was you got to know when to drown your babies, right? You got and it's hard, like because sometimes sometimes every idea you have feels like a beautiful newborn creature in your care and you have to tell yourself that it isn't so what you're drowning isn't really a baby it's an idea that wasn't going to work it's not a baby it just feels like a baby. no it's just the the most morbid way to frame it <laughs> yeah but this is what drama workshops are like sometimes um uh serialism uh came up very briefly with dean burry on episode two and we never defined it properly so i like i put in the show notes like here's what serialism is but it's like they don't want to go to wikipedia so okay i'm going to try to define serialism very very quickly and then daniel you tell me if there's anything i missed because i'm not a serialist okay so a hundred years ago uh more than a hundred years ago 110 years ago uh arnold schoenberg um viennese composer he started uh figuring out a way to write atonal music that used all 12 tones equally. And I think the basic idea is you try to use them uh, all before you repeat any of them. So for melodies, you go through your order of 12, and then, then you start again. Um, and in terms of what the order is, that's your tone row. You can build a matrix, which allows you to go forwards or backwards, or in inversions, where you your the intervals between the notes go the other way. And so you have kind of these four ways to do the melody. And then you can start picking chords out of that. But what happened, just like Daniel's talking about, is other composers right away started using it in ways that were less strict and less atonal. So Alban Berg, like his violin concerto, his tone row, what? It's got like major chords, major triads in it. And then a whole tone scale at the end or something. Yeah, so there, does that is that a good encapsulation? Yeah, yeah, relatively. I, th I think of it as, um, as a set of tools. It's a to, yeah, they're that guide you through through the compositional process. Uh, uh, Schoenberg's term was the emancipation of dissonance, right? right. Um, it's about using tones uh, equally so that no one stands above the other. Yeah. Um, There's literally no tonic, which makes it truly atonal. Yeah. But these days, people don't tend to be strict serialists. And if they use it, it's, it's a tool, which is what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So that's our little informative moment for people at home who may or may not have cared. Uh, it is, it, uh, it influences a lot of things. All right. So, uh, and then you said trash at the end. Your trash. three words were post-impressionist, serialist, trash. Yep. This is, I'm just going to let you explain that. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's just, uh, it speaks to the, the flippancy with which I view my own music. I don't, um, aspire to grand art. Uh, okay. it's, it's therefore, 
consumption and engagement in the way that the audience wants to consume and engage with it. Um, and uh, I have no designs on it beyond that. Um, so you put it out there, what people take from it is what they take from it. Yeah. Uh, you're never going to hear me be like, oh, yes, this this piece is clearly you know, uh, fine art um, because I have no reference for my own work. <laughs> it's like it's hard for you to, to, to know what, what to, to judge it for yourself or you don't even want to judge your work for yourself? No, I, I don't think it's for... Well, I mean, it's hard for me to, to see anything <laughs> good in my own work. Um, I'm very, uh, very critical of all of my own work. But um, just more in that I don't, uh, I don't have lofty ideas about, about my own music, um, I, which may seem contradictory to, to sort of the serialist nature of it, because that historically has been, uh, you know, the serious music for serious composers. Um, but for me, it's just kind of like, yeah, it's some sounds. It's uh, these are sounds I like. Uh, hope yeah. you like them too. <laughs> well, I, and, and and you know, the, we're, we're going to talk soon about like um, younger musicians, amateur musicians, and how they can approach composition. But but like that sounds like a way in, right? Rather yeah. than anyone thinking that we do this to create high art. Like if every time I picked up a crayon, I had to make a a, a Da Vinci sketch. You know, I wouldn't be picking up a lot of crayons. Yeah. Right. It's you have to find your way in. And, and if <laughs> if your way into writing music is that you like music and you like sounds, that seems like a way that, that makes sense. Yeah. Neat. So trash in the sense you're distancing yourself from your, your process a little bit. It's, I've, I just never heard anyone say that about their own <laughs> music, but I feel it all the time about my own music. Yeah. So I understand. I mean, I, in, I, in I this, just haven't put it in my bio. You know? in, in this instance, I don't, uh, I don't mean it in such a, a pejorative way. I mean, it in sort of like, uh, uh, I don't know. I think, I think to borrow the, the vernacular of the youth, I think they would say like based, I don't know if that's a term that gets thrown around where they're like, it's, it's what you do and it's genuine. Uh, it's, it's not mm. disingenuous affectations uh, thrown yeah. on for the purpose of affecting some sort of airs. It's, uh, you know, that's just kind of how I am. I'm kind of, kind of weird. And I kind of like, uh, you know, having a nice procedure for doing things. And I like, I like the sounds that I like. And uh, sometimes they're nice sounds and sometimes they're not nice sounds. And, uh, in sort of like pretty sounds and ugly sounds. You know, mm. They're all sounds uh, and totally. they all have functions. This is what I love about listening on Bandcamp is people putting out just, you know, whatever practice they're working on and like listen to it, pay for it if, if you want. And there are the weirdest, most wonderful things out there. And it's just this endless, you know, and it's this, I guess it's kind of the same thing. We put it out and people take what they can from it. Yeah. That's really cool. So um, let's let's talk about um, some of your projects specifically. Uh, you told me about uh, Proof Rock. Is this based on what I think it's based on? Uh, if you think it's based on the love song of J. Alfred Proof Rock by T.S. Eliot, then I yes, do. it is. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so is it a, a setting of it in any sort of literal way? Yeah, it, it's... Um, it, it is almost wholesale uh, a setting of, of the text. There's um, a single scene in the middle that's drawn from uh, discarded material from Proofrock called the Proofrock Privigilium. I'm okay. probably saying that wrong because I've only ever read it. Uh, 
but uh and there's obviously places where i've just chopped text because it gets long-winded and sometimes you got to make decisions in the interest of listener interest uh but uh yeah more or less just a straight setting of uh, of the love song of j alford proofrock so what drew you to t.s Eliot into that poem um well i i started uh i guess the first time i read it was in university um it's a, it's a little ironic because i started this uh i started the piece in 2017 um but it was kind of based on a theme of of like isolation <laughs> uh, okay. which seems apropos now um, yes <laughs> but uh so I, I guess that's kind of what drew it to me and sort of the um the relationship between proof rock and the treatment of, uh, of baritones within, um, uh, you know, within opera, um, you know, you're not, you're the everyman, right? And proof rock is a character that, uh, is very much the everyman, but he thinks he's, he's the hero, right? Mm. Uh, the, the whole poem is about him being very average and, uh, filled with anxieties uh, and all of these things, but he conceives him of himself in um, in, ter- in literary terms of, of you know Grecian heroes and, and things like that. Uh, right. So uh, there there is also some some association with the historical use of baritones within uh, within operatic traditions. Right. So did you write this for a specific baritone? No, no. I so I started off the project the. The impetus behind the whole thing is uh, developing electroacoustic works for uh, that are aimed to be accessible for for non-professional performers, um, and the the goal with it is that it eventually will be a cycle of of operas for each voice type. So it was really a decision-making process of which voice type am I going to start with uh, for my master's thesis because that's okay. an opportunity to write uh, a big piece. Uh, and I, I settled on baritone for, for a couple of reasons. One, because I am a baritone, uh, and it's a lot easier for me to just go through. And if I need to, if I need to check if something's possible, <laughs> I just try it. Uh, and then I'm like, yeah, someone who's better singer than me can probably do that then. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so that, that was one consideration. And then, uh, the other consideration mm-hmm. is I wanted to start with a, a male voice type, um, because of the... Um, sort of the the maturate maturation yeah that's the right word uh the maturation of the the male voice over time um i don't know if you've ever noticed this but especially going to like universities you see opera productions and you'll see um you know you'll see like sopranos and mezzo sopranos they've got big voices they can get over the orchestra and then very often you've got your tenors and your baritones and your basses and they they struggle a lot more uh, yeah. at that stage in their development to get over the orchestra. Um, even in, in professional settings, uh, I, I've seen it happen with amazing performers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, it becomes hard to hear them and they don't project as well. Um, so it, it's kind of, uh, uh, there's a, a podcast from University of Guelph called uh, Sound Off, I think, uh, okay. which is about uh, sound and improvisation. 
So the podcast that Daniel's referring to here is actually called Sound It Out, and it used to air on uh, CFRU radio in Guelph, as well as online, but it looks like they haven't made an episode for a couple of years. Uh, the host is Rachel Elliott, and uh, they have 83 episodes so far, and I will post their website in the show notes. Can't remember who said the quote. It was something about, you know, historically there has been, you know, we've lost a great number of, of like, beautiful voices. Uh simply by virtue of the fact that they don't project over an orchestra uh mm. and that you know in a modern context there's no reason to uh to not have those voices involved because you have amplification um, it's very it's it's so absurd because um in 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 all other musics that use amplification for voices we hear people sing very quietly into a microphone and that's their their style sometimes mm -hmm. you know you don't have to be a belter to really uh have a lot of people be interested in your voice yeah. you know yeah so the, the the whole idea there is that if you uh for for the tenors and the baritones if you um if you have control over the the volume then you can uh, work out in advance what the correct balance is for your for your voice yeah. with individual tracks and then balance the the music accordingly and uh and put on a, a successful performance um, even if you're not fully uh, mic'd for the entire thing. And am I right in thinking here that they operate their own electronics? Yeah, the, the idea is that it's fully performable and stageable by a single person. Um, okay. So how, how do you do that? How do you make that kind of performance accessible to people who haven't maybe done it before? <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, that, that's that's the one of the big challenges. I think it's partially exposure. Um, so people don't, uh, experience, uh, electroacoustics in the course of their, uh, music education almost ever. Um, uh, maybe you can speak to this, uh, like in the course of, of your, you've done, uh, well, I know for a fact you've done a bachelor's and a, at least a master's. Mm -hmm. Um, at any point, did you perform electroacoustic pieces like uh, as a not performer? Per not perform um and i wish i'd been forced to because it you know it i think it's a good part of the the practice no i only did it as a behind the computer guy kind of thing yeah you know? well I, I think that's overwhelmingly the experience of uh, yeah. of even people that go to university for um for music uh only a handful of times did i ever see electroacoustics performed at my university um at my undergraduate university i should say um so what what does the baritone do in your piece to trigger sounds or yeah i so in the the various permutations um it's essentially using a clicker uh for like a okay. slideshow presentation you you click a button turns on the next scene right. um now I've, I've sort of set up the progression of this piece as uh, a sort of a, a software engineering project so in current form of the piece that's what happens there's more elements that are uh, being integrated as I as I go to make the piece uh, more variable and accessible. So I'm currently working on a version where um, instead of having fixed tape tracks for everything, the certain lines are are generated, uh, and then changing the scene instead stops the generation process. Some of the things come in as fixed, some of the things are more flexible and allow the performer to do more things. Uh, but the goal there was oh, okay. uh, was accessibility um, because. You know, if you don't have access to, uh, like, if you have access to a computer and speakers, 
then you can do the piece with the tape. If you have access to a computer and an audio interface and a microphone, then you can do the piece with, uh, with some of the live components, you know, um, right. And, you know, it meets the, it meets the performer where they're at with it though. Uh, so I think that kind of, <laughs> that's maybe that, important in yeah. terms of getting things performed as well. Yeah. Uh, I think that maybe kind of answers, uh, answers your initial question, which was how do you, uh, sort of get people into this? Um, which is, uh, by trying to give them uh, as much of a sort of a steady, uh, slope, uh, or a scaffolded, um, approach as possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I like this idea of just like having one clicker. Um, is it, is it for hands or for feet? Uh, for hands. So it's, yeah. um, I, I conceived of it as like just a Bluetooth, literally a Bluetooth, um, Right. <laughs> like slide clicker. That's that's uh, about as accessible as you can get. Yeah. Without say doing a passive thing where any movement they make gets picked up, but then they probably don't know how to set that up themselves. Yeah. Well, and then you also get in the issue of uh, you have to have the sensors, right? Uh, yeah. You have to have a Wiimote or, or whatever, uh, you know, off the shelf uh, motion sensors you want to use. Um, and of course the, the higher technical threshold to, uh, to set it up. I think those things can yeah. probably be, uh, pretty intimidating. Um, I think so. And I don't know if the results are always that clear. Sometimes it's like, well, why didn't you just use a, a delay pedal, mm-hmm. you know, like something that's just easier to, to stomp on. So you were writing that this is inspired by the idea of universal design. Yeah. So I, that's kind of where I came at from uh, in terms of uh, conceiving of it. Um, that's my my starting point, which is how can you... Um, so, I mean, maybe to, to start with what universal design is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's essentially a, an educational philosophy, um, which is uh, about creating uh, teaching in a context that is uh, that is such that people don't have to ask for accommodations. That's accessible enough <laughs> that uh, people can uh, come to it as they are and engage in some way that is meaningful uh, to them. And usually, that's done through uh, through some sort of pluralistic approach. So that's um, where I was initially starting when I was uh, conceiving of the entire process of. Mm-hmm. Um, of designing the electronics is how can I make it so that uh, whoever comes to it doesn't have to say, oh, well, I don't have X, so I have to get X or I don't have Y. How can I make it as bare bones uh, as, as possible so that no one has to, uh, to ask for, for some sort of accommodation with it. Um, Right. And so again, you're, you're lowering the barrier to entry yeah. Uh, for someone and, 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 you know, just tied to the theme of this podcast, I don't know how difficult the baritone writing is, but you're, you're making it so that the electronics aren't harder than the singing part. Right. Yes. Uh, th- so, I mean, th- this set of pieces is, uh, is intended to be quite challenging. It's aimed at a sort of late undergraduate, okay. uh, sort of level of, of performer. The idea for it was that, um, another inspiration was, um, uh, the the bicycle opera company i don't know oh, if yeah. uh, mm-hmm. that do tours of of sort of small shows so they can go into rural areas uh and perform opera uh, so the the idea was uh to some degree to to make it so that if you were sort of late undergraduate uh early graduate between undergraduate and graduate as as many of us end up um 
and you want to engage in performance, you can take it and go. And you you know you want to do a tour, you can take uh, a fully dramatized piece on tour without having to uh, drag along seven musicians with you. Um, right, and then like I you know it, it sounds like given the the subject matter, this isn't necessarily aimed at, at young audiences, but this kind of approach could be very useful for touring. Uh, for for young audiences as well, where you're going to school gymnasiums or, well, these days, out on the lawn uh, or something like that, right? Yeah, precisely. Um, the, the idea behind it is not that um, that this is sort of the end goal. The, the idea behind it is that, um, as we were saying, there's no scaffolded electroacoustic uh, rep yeah. repertoire. Um, people don't engage with it. Uh, so we need to... One, if we want people to engage with electroacoustic music at the top levels, we need to start lowering the level of electro, like of yeah. professional skill needed to engage in uh, totally with electroacoustic music. Uh, and my feeling is that you should start just below where we're at and start walking it backwards rather than starting right at the beginning and then hoping that you can connect up with it somewhere down the line. Right, and then you're you're like the the two sides digging the channel. Uh, between France and England and sort of missing each other. By yeah. Things. Yeah. And having to correct it. I, I don't remember if that was true or not, but anyway, I like the idea. Um, I was going to, speaking of building things, I was, I was just going to tie uh, for everybody who, who maybe hasn't heard of it, the idea of universal design to its beginning as like a physical thing. And there's a, a really good episode of 99% Invisible, great design podcast about universal design, but they talk about it a lot, as I recall. Yes. So I think the first example people give is curb cuts curbs used to just be high and there was no way to roll off of them at the intersection so you know there was a tripping hazard and also if you've got a wheelchair you it's really hard to get around the city and then you know they realize that the, whichever town it was it was kalamazoo or somewhere that they did the first ones i can't remember they realized oh it's not just people in wheelchairs who use these it's people with strollers it's people with push carts full of books that they're selling or something, you know, it's, it's, it's everybody uses curb cuts. The same thing is true with ramps. The same thing is true with, with automatic sliding doors, right? So, so everything that we have in our built design environment, this then became inspiration for universal design in everything else. So in, in learning, I think you, you define that extremely well, right? That we're, we're making sure everyone's got enough options that they can meet it where they're at and they don't feel intimidated by the process. There's no high bar to get started and to complete mm -hmm. whatever you're working on. Yeah. So um, you also mentioned that you have some pieces uh, that have a bit of a pedagogical bent to them. One of them is uh, is a piece I wrote for uh, for trumpet and uh, and electronics, which was uh, very explicitly uh, a set of studies to prepare people to play. Uh, Jonathan Harvey's Ruticara Una Melodia, um, which is a piece for uh, trumpet and for uh, four-track tape. For. Oh, wow. So the, that work is pretty difficult to, to get into, um, both in terms of its content it involves a lot of crazy extended techniques, like uh, like half-valve trumpet. Um, okay. But but in, in, in Harvey's work, it's, you know, a seven, eight-minute uh, piece, uh, you got to work with, uh, if not like a physical tape machine, uh, then some Maximus P patch and a microphone to to do it. Um, so the idea with that piece was just to to grab individual ideas that are challenging, 
uh, within the work and present them in isolation so that you know people can play with them uh, and and uh, get into them um, relatively accessibly. Like, uh, okay, I think the the first study in that is probably appropriate for like first year undergraduates. Um, the the third one is uh, is certainly more challenging. It is sort of a, a truncated uh, version of okay. of Harvey's own work. So the, there's a progressive sense to them in terms of each one uh, gets a little bit more difficult. But um, yeah, the the whole idea there is that uh, you 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 get used to working with the the electronics and the tape delay uh, in smaller isolated sections so that. Um, one, it's not overwhelming, mm-hmm. uh, and two, just as a practical matter, if you're a, if you're a music student or you're a musician, you want to present music. Uh, so, and if if you want to get into playing uh, Harvey's piece, well, you got to learn the whole eight minute piece and all of these crazy things in in one go. But if there's a progressive yeah. way into it, then okay, well, I can prevent, present the first study, and that's where I'm at. And I can present the first two studies until. You know, eventually you've got the whole repertoire there, and uh, it, it yeah. represents a substantial amount of time. Because it's, it's there's there's a confidence angle there too. That just you know, if you're used to playing your trumpet on stage, but not used to also controlling electronics while playing trumpet, mm-hmm. you, you want to not just practice it at home and then go out and do Jonathan Harvey's piece. You want to come to it in front of an audience, bit by bit. As someone who has completely messed up a loop pedal in front of a crowd on more than one occasion. I understand this. It is a stressful thing. I'm used to playing other things, not the loop pedal. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Making a mistake into uh, into any sort of, like, tape delay is just the, the worst thing because it just comes back to haunt you so many times. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Especially if you swear or uh, make a weird noise you didn't intend to make. Empty yeah. your spit too close to the microphone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's tr- <laughs> me with trombone and loop pedal is what I was doing. There's a little bit of a jump in the conversation here. Uh, we were talking about the fact that I saw a trombone in uh, the, the frame behind Daniel, and then he told me that his partner is working on a B-Ed and has all sorts of instruments in their apartment. We got to talking about how does one find the space uh, to be alone and to do their own creative work in an apartment during a pandemic, and that led into the following discussion. Uh, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but the whole pandemic has uh, been really challenging me challenging for me in terms of actually uh like having a creative output um it sitting in my apartment uh 24 hours a day does not at all jive with my normal creative processes no Uh, like are you you the kind of person who likes to to walk and wander when you're yeah i'm very much like uh I have like a turtle like approach to doing work. Like I'll set up somewhere, I'll do some amount of work and then it goes in my backpack and I'll walk somewhere else and I'll do some more work and I'll throw in my backpack and walk Mm. somewhere. Um, Very much about like creating artificial context for myself to do things so that, you know, uh, arbitrarily like I'll, I'll throw one book into my backpack and then that's the only thing I can do. Right. Cause I've only got one book with me. Ah, you're putting, you're putting, that's, so it's partly like it's a focus. Yeah. Trick that you, oh, it's entirely. It sounds, a it sounds a lot like a, like one of these Pomodoro yeah. things like work for 25, rest for five, except that instead of resting for five, you go somewhere else. You walk somewhere else, you get a coffee and you, my, uh, so yeah, my, my compositional output for the last year was, uh, I, I think two pieces. 
you know that okay. that got finished and and put out there. I've you know composed other things, but nothing has reached like finished and and performable and given mm-hmm. to performers and played sort of stage. Uh, otherwise, so it's kind of rough. Uh, I I I think a lot of people are feeling that way. Yeah. You know, um, and it, it's not it doesn't matter if you have time. It's not about time. It's often no. about space. And that's both, an out, I guess, for you, a physical space thing. But but the mental space. Yeah, too. absolutely. I, I definitely never set out to make this a podcast about like, how do we cope as composers through COVID? But it, it keeps coming up. I should not be surprised by that. <laughs> no, I mean, I you can't. I don't need to bring it up. It just comes up. You, you can't you can't really engage in conversations right now without it. uh without it coming up, I was doing, yeah. uh, interviews with, with teachers, um, for, for a paper I was writing and I was looking at, um, sort of their feelings towards teaching online. Uh, and my, my conceit at the beginning of it was like, it's not about the pandemic, right? Like I'm not doing this research because of the pandemic, uh, this is you're research. just looking at like pure online teaching. I just, am, kind of thing? yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I okay. think that online teaching is, um, something that's not going to become less pervasive and I'm interested in sort of how we make it more uh, effective for students and how we make teachers more interested in it. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think the number is something like 66% of teachers before the pandemic uh, flat out said that they wouldn't ever teach online. Um, right. We may have seen some shift now that people are feeling more like it's possible, but it's only possible sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. have my thoughts, but what are, what did you learn from? Well, uh, what I learned from it was that it doesn't matter <laughs> if you say this isn't, I, I, I like, we're not here to discuss the pandemic at all. Uh, it still comes up, <laughs> uh, no matter yeah. what you do. Um, of so, course. I mean, it was, it was interesting just to, to sort of track that and see where, uh, where people were at with it. Um, and, and certainly it was, uh, to a degree of, uh, there's there's a self-selection bias with it right um you know sure. you, you put it out there and be like hey i want to talk to people about their feelings towards uh online teaching the overwhelming majority of people <laughs> that are going to be like i'll talk to you about uh about all of my online teaching or people that are that are 100 percent like into it and for it um so uh and yeah. like you know but, uh, you know, it's interesting to see sort of the different ways people approach certain things, especially as a, so, I mean, the, the thing that I do uh, right now, <laughs> most of my time is uh, teaching drum lessons online. Uh, okay. So, uh, and sort of the, the parallels between what I'm doing in that practice and, and what other people are doing in their practice. Um, I, I mean, I should say, uh, a lot of my, my pedagogical activities with, uh, with composition, though, have actually happened uh, outside of my, my drum lessons, um, mm-hmm. working with... Uh, working with um, students uh, doing projects with uh, people in the music ed department at, uh, at Western. So the, the big one we did was called the, the Sound Sculpture Park Project. Uh, so here in uh, London, there's a park called Gibbons Park, uh, and there's a uh, sound play sculpture uh, that has a bunch of metallophones um, that are diatonic, two-octave instruments, and then has three sort of... Uh, three drums uh, that are meant to be played with your hands. And uh, one of my um, co-investigators, you know, was sort of traveling through the park and he saw this and he's like, oh, well, we have to, you know, this has to be, this has to be explored. He's very, (laughs) he's very like that, right? Like it's, uh, you know, like, oh, there's a thing and I've, I've got an idea 
and I'm, <laughs> we're, get, we're running with it, uh, <laughs> which is great. Um, so he, he sort of developed this relationship with, um, with a local school, uh, with a teacher at a local school who's also uh, the bassoon professor at, uh, at Western. Uh, his name is uh, Alexandre Wartenberg. And we went in and we did, uh, you know, I think it was 12 weeks of uh, composition with them. Um, so going in and uh, developing the works so that the, in the classroom so that then they could take them and play them on the instruments at the park. Cool. Um, and that was, it was a very interesting experience because there's a lot of logistical uh, considerations because these are sort of very specific instruments like they have specific limitations on them and how do you how do you get students to understand the limitations of those instruments in the classroom and you know how do you get them to uh you know engage uh <laughs> like engage in group composition uh and especially when um you know you've got a pretty significant uh, uh spread of musical experiences um, and different sort of places that they're coming from. You know, how do you uh, design a project like that so that students that are like, have been taking piano lessons, classical piano lessons, don't sort of like dominate and assert themselves as mm. musical experts. Yeah, um, that happens. Yep. <laughs> uh, you know, and you've got your, another kid over there that plays like rock guitar who has valid musical experiences. Um, and uh and you know he might just not just might not engage with it uh, in the yeah. same way. Uh, so obviously, if you're using like traditional notation, uh, that's going to privilege certain people and disadvantage others, right? Uh, you know, if you use guitar tap, that's going to privilege people and disadvantage others. Um, so navigating all of those things is uh, is very interesting. There's a, another bit of a universal design thing there. If you let people notate in whatever way is comfortable for them, mm -hmm. be it graphical or tab or or on a five staff, five line staff, you know. Yeah. But but then you as the teacher or the the moderator have to <laughs> help that group bridge all that together. That can be tough. Yeah. So what we actually ended up doing um, is I I designed a, a proprietary system that no one would have seen before, and uh, uh, it was largely inspired by uh, by Helmut Lockenmann's uh, Pression, um, which is the a solo piece for for cello. I don't know if you're if you're familiar with it. Not sure. Um, it's, it's one of his uh, pieces of uh, music concrète, uh, acoustic, acoustic music concrète, um, where he's like exploring um, sort of non-musical sounds of instruments, right? Like, uh, like Guiro for piano as well. Um, but uh, in that piece, the, the staff notation, the, the clef on it is just a cello drawn from the perspective of a uh, of the performer okay uh, and then that's <laughs> the uh the clef of it and then everything is notated in relationship to that um so we did something very similar where we created some sort of background reference actually i have them here we used uh, like post-it stickies okay uh and because they're diatonic we outlined a, a c major seven chord um and uh you know, each uh, each note in the chord got a different color, and then that became uh, lines on sort of a vertical staff where they would put the notes, um, so that got they could it. find it in relationship to the stickies in the the classroom. Right, uh, that's a that's a very like using color coding and yeah is a really 
good way to approach something. And I guess by by creating this system that none of the kids would have seen before, you're not privileging or shutting anyone yeah. in or out. The the Locke and Mon connection was was kind of I I saw that I you know I, I knew about that piece and I was reading um uh a it's a book by uh Jonathan D'Souza called uh Music at Hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is about music cognition. Um, and there was a quote in there, uh, blanking on who, but the, the effect of it was kind of that uh, Locke and Mon's music makes everyone uh, an amateur, right? Uh, in terms of your relation, sure. your body relationship to the instrument, uh, you there's no real advantage to being <laughs> a trained performer and performing Locke and Mon. There might be an, an advantage to being uh, more musical and having done more musical things because you have... Uh, experience with that but your sort of technical prowess on the instrument isn't so much of a factor um so that's kind of what what i was drawing on in terms of Mm. trying to to level the uh level the playing field of of discourse for for the students really neat because i think of lock and as like the the highest skilled players the ones who can even try that stuff because there's but in a but a way if you sort of ignore the notation you know, Lachemann, for people who don't know, he's, he, he writes a lot of, like, non-typical sounds. So instruments often don't sound at all like themselves because he's getting you to play them in completely unusual ways. But the truth is that those techniques are not hard. The hard part is reading the score, <laughs> right, and knowing and, and deciphering what he wants. And, and, you know, there's a lot of skill required in playing these things with proficiency. But, yeah, in a way, it... it uh, I've found that too in working with students. If you get them to, to play completely unexpected sounds on their instruments or like, you know, just play sounds with the objects around you, it does democratize it mm-hmm. because you don't need to be an expert to get interesting sounds out of any object, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As long as you don't damage the object. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's always a, a consideration with the, the percussion stuff, right? It's because... Uh, it's a thing for hitting, but uh, if you hit it the wrong way, you you break it. <laughs> uh, so what what was the result? Did you with this sculpture in the park? Did you get um, did you get a video of it, or like was there documentation? Of oh the yeah, process? yeah, we uh, we did. Um, like there was recording of uh, of all the pieces and um, and all that. So we we have that. It turned out quite well. It was it was interesting because the, we had the the class divided into to four and they had two different periods so one group uh came in and worked like we had two groups at a time and then two groups at a time um and we we ended up with completely different results depending on on uh the people that they worked with because um myself and uh and jason who was uh sort of the the one who uh who was the impetus for for the project um both have sort of a, a composer background um as sort of our our main thing he's mostly in education but uh he's also a composer uh and the the uh alexandra and caroline who were the uh the other two investigators and one of them is the teacher um are are more performers um and the the pieces kind of and we divided up along those lines just by chance uh, and the pieces that got produced ended up sort of dividing along those lines as well, where uh, where the performance focus, the more performance uh, oriented people ended up producing um, sort of these really short and then 
extremely tightly performed pieces. Um, and they sounded really, really, really amazing. Whereas, <laughs> uh, whereas myself and Jason's groups ended up with like, uh, like four or five minute sort of multi-section pieces that were, uh, that were, you know, the performance was a little bit looser, uh, and there was some more like improvisational elements and, uh, and conducting involved. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it was just sort of interesting to see that, uh, that those two groups sort of brought their own, um, even within what was kind of like a narrowly defined project. There's something neat there about, about getting young people. I'm sorry, what ages were they? Uh, that was grade eight. So right. Oh, 13? that's a neat age for this kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to, to give them like an instrument that, that anyone can play and then have them do their own thing with it. And also I like the public nature of it mm -hmm. as well, that it's like, this is something that literally anyone can play because it is <laughs> sitting out in a park. Yeah. Right? Well, and the, the, sorry, the final performance was, uh, was like a public performance and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we invited people to the park, like the parents and, and stuff. And then people from, from Western also came. So, uh, actually the people from, uh, that made the instruments also, uh, also came to it. Uh, oh, that's so, neat. That was, yeah. So it was very interesting. Um, so it, and yeah, I think it was a good experience for the, the students. They got, uh, very excited, uh, once, uh, like once they were actually in the park, uh, and playing on the actual instruments, um, so it was it was very interesting because uh, you know within any group with, <laughs> with any project, some people are going to be a little more disaffected, and then um, <laughs> the second you put them in the park and the the instruments are there to play, and th they were all like way excited to just run to them and start start playing stuff on them. So that was uh, great to see, and it kind of makes you uh, it kind of made us think that maybe we should have led with that. Like we should have started with getting them out to the park to see the instruments. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense to me as a kind of a minds on thing. Yeah. Um, and then they know what they're working with and they're feeling excited about it. But I mean, logistics, right? How far yeah. is the school from the park? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, not very far, but we still had to look far yeah, enough that you have to get out. a bus. <laughs> yes. And you yeah, have yeah. The oh boy. Yes. You have all the logistics of that. <laughs>
And that's it for episode four of Fresh Sounds Open Ears. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't yet, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to uh, share, spread the word, then please uh, rate us, review us, and uh, come and like our social media as well. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Come and write something, uh, share your thoughts, and I'd love to have a conversation with you online. Over the next three episodes, I'll be talking to three amazing composers who all make collaboration with young and amateur musicians a major part of their work. Next episode, in two weeks' time, we'll be talking to Juliet Palmer, and after that I have interviews already recorded with Aferin Mansouri and with Louise Campbell. I hope you'll listen and share. Fresh Sounds Open Ears is presented by the ACNMP, the Alliance for Canadian New Music Projects. Our music is by Saman Shahi, and our administrative help has been from Steph Chua. Uh, and right now, Steph's going to tell you all about the ACNMP. The Alliance for Canadian New Music Projects, ACNMP, is an organization dedicated to the promotion of Canadian contemporary music. Throughout our history, it has been our mission to encourage teachers to teach Canadian contemporary music, to motivate students to study and perform this music, and to encourage Canadian composers to write music for students of all levels, from the most junior to the paraprofessional. Our mission is to commission, promote, and preserve Canadian contemporary music as a cornerstone of our national heritage by fostering its performance among students, teachers, and performers through education, festivals, and workshops. Visit us at acnmp.ca.